0: Greetings and welcome to the 5 by. Lots going on this week. First of all, if you're attending BGG Con next week, Mason and Stephanie will be hosting a podcast meetup on Friday at 6pm in room 1113. Games will be played and general fun should be had. Thank you, Mason and Stephanie, for making this possible, and we hope to see you there. Second, there's another contest. This one is being run by the Inside Voices Network to give away a copy of Stop Thief from Restoration Games. To enter, please tweet hashtag SpeedyBandit to at InsideVoicesNet with a picture of whatever family-friendly thing comes to mind when you think SpeedyBandit. You can enter multiple times using the hashtags mentioned in the other shows in the network, so be sure to check those out. Okay, showtime. Stephanie brings the fun with Steam Park. Sarah gives us a look into the world of Gloomhaven. Catherine tells us about this war of mine. Mason rises to the occasion with his review of Ascension. And lastly, I end the podcast with a review of Stop Thief. Grab some popcorn and let's get started.
1: Okay, let's get controversial. I don't like theme parks. Never have. Okay, correction. I like the idea of theme parks. Like, I get why other people like them, but there's something lost in translation for me. Also, I'm terrified of roller coasters, so... Add that to the ever-growing list of things I am sure will kill me one day. But to explore a theme park with 100% less chance of falling to my death? Let's do it! In Steam Park, released in 2013 and available from Yellow Games, players are owners of a very unique theme park. You build coal-powered robotic rides to attract visitors to your park. In addition to building those thrill rides I hear some people like, you'll also need to maintain those things that interest those far less adventurous visitors, you know, like casinos. You know, I'd probably visit more theme parks if there was a casino. The players with the best and most successful theme park after six rounds wins. So, just how do you become the theme park mogul you were destined to be? Starting with the roll phase, players simultaneously roll their six dice over and over, setting aside the ones they want to keep And then re rolling to their heart's content. Once a player is happy with their dice, they grab the bonus for that round for being the first to complete their rolling. The rest of the players continue to roll, and the second person to stop rolling takes their bonus. If you're last, well, sure, you've had more time to get those perfect dice rolls, but you'll find yourself with a small penalty, namely extra dirt. And there's a whole phase devoted just to dirt. After rolling is complete, Players take a dirt token for each dirt symbol on the dice, as well as a dirt token for each visitor currently in their park. All that coal and all those thrill-seekers tend to mess things up a bit. Then comes the action phase where players, in order, can add to their park, tidy things up a bit, or attract more visitors based on the dice that they roll. To build, a player selects an attraction or ride to add to their park. Rides come in a variety of colors, and players can choose the color ride they wish. More on that later. Rides help you get more visitors, and attractions give you bonuses to use throughout the game. Speaking of visitors, this action is my absolute favorite part of this game, and one of the more creative mechanics I've seen in a game that isn't primarily a bag builder. For each robot symbol you've rolled, you take a meeple from the visitor pool in the color you want, and then draw out the same number of meeples that you put in. If a visitor you drew out of the bag matches the color of a ride you have in your park, and there's an open space on that ride, the visitor climbs aboard and will ride your ride until the end of the game like some sort of fiend. Those visitors love facing their own mortality, I guess. But if the colors don't match or spots are full, the meeple goes back into the visitor pool. All remaining meeples still in the bag stay where they are. The balance of remembering what color meeples are already in the bag, what color rides are available, and just how lucky you feel turn a very light game into something that invites a bit of clever planning. Finally, it's the income phase where you earn money for each visitor meeple currently in your park. Pretty simple. And then the next round starts until everyone has played all six rounds. After the sixth round, players calculate their income, Pay out the fee to clean up any remaining dirt, and a winner is declared. Lorenzo Silva, Lorenzo Tucci Sorrentino, and Aurelian Buonfino have designed an absolute delight of a game. Steampark plays two to four players in about a half an hour. It would make a great moderate-weight family game with older kids, or a light game with more advanced players. There is also an easier scoring mode if you want to dial it back even further but what really stands out is just how fun the game is to look at. Marie Cardewat's artwork perfectly sets off the whimsy of the game. The rides are sturdy but easy to assemble, and it's fun to see those colorful little meeples riding on top of them. Steampark retails for about $50 but can be found significantly cheaper online. If you're looking for a light game, both in gameplay and tone, that balances luck and strategy, Steampark is the game for you plus robots. I mean, who doesn't love robots? For The 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, stay playful.
2: It's difficult to review Gloomhaven in five minutes. The game is big, enormous, sprawling, both in physical size, the box is literally almost as big as my microwave oven, and in scope. It's a dungeon crawler with modular maps, 17 character classes, dozens of monster types, 96 playable scenarios, plus bonus scenarios that were created during the second Kickstarter campaign. Gloomhaven was designed by Isaac Childress and published in early 2017 by Cephalofair Games. It was originally available only on Kickstarter, but should be hitting retail in the next couple of weeks. There's so much to Gloomhaven that I can't possibly describe it all in detail. In fact, my only sort of criticism of Gloomhaven is that there are so many mechanisms and rules to keep track of. A dozen games in, we were still discovering rules we'd missed, and our first two games were basically unwinnable because of rules mistakes. That was fine, we're okay with learning as we go. But if you're a stickler for rules, plan on studying Gloomhaven before you play it. In any case, instead of trying to cover the entire game and saying nothing about everything, I'm going to talk in depth about one mechanism I really love, the character lifespan. See, in a Gloomhaven campaign, you play the same character from game to game. When you first open the box, you have six classes to choose from. Some are based on standard D&D classes like Barbarian, Wizard, Rogue, albeit with different names. And some are more novel, but still fairly straightforward. This gives you the chance to dig into the world of Gloomhaven and learn how the game works in the difficult early levels. Because I'm not going to kid you, Gloomhaven is difficult, especially early on. The difficulty adjusts to match the level of your party, and you can lower it to make the game a little easier. I recommend that in your first few games, But if you're someone who scoffs at easy mode, well, good for you, but you're going to get what you paid for. As you continue to play, your character levels up. You gain new abilities and learn how to use them in combination with the rest of your party. Sometimes you luck into an ability combo that makes everyone shine if they work together in just the right sequence. You'd think this would make the game easier, but the monster difficulty is ramping up too, and scenarios are designed to require significantly different strategies from game to game. So games stay nail-biting, edge of your seat, OMG, how will we survive this, much longer than you'd expect. You won't play that same character forever, though. When you first begin a new character, you draw a personal quest card with a secret goal for your character. When the goal is met, your character retires. As in, they leave the game. They're done exploring. Each personal quest has a symbol on it which matches one of the sealed envelopes that came in the box. When your character retires, you get to open that envelope, revealing a new class you can choose for your next character. Or you could choose one of the already available classes, or repeat the class you just retired. But that wouldn't be much fun. I've heard from others that they don't like retirement because they get attached to their characters. It's the opposite for me. I've played three classes and have loved every one of them, and each time I was happy to retire them and try something new. After a dozen games, I feel like I get how to play a class, and I've leveled up enough to have access to some powerful abilities, and that's great. It's so satisfying to wade through monsters just knocking them down. But at that point, the game starts to feel a bit less challenging than I like. My favorite Gloomhaven character yet was the one in the envelope with the sun symbol. Played right, she was unstoppable. Sometimes I felt almost giddy, like I can't believe she's able to do this. And yet, I knew it was time to retire her when two games in a row felt too easy. So we went up an extra difficulty level, and it was still too easy. I like that edge of the seat, how are we going to get through this tension, and I love that when I want that feeling back, I can retire the uber character. In fact, I played the game that retired her last night. Next time, I start with a fresh character class that's not just new to this campaign, but totally different from anything I've encountered before. A completely new playstyle. I can't wait. Even after you retire a character, you aren't done with them. There are decks called road events and city events that you draw from before and after each game. The first time you retire a class, you add a new card to each of those decks. We recently drew the City event from my first retired character, one of the starting classes. And we met her. The card described us meeting her. It unlocked a new scenario that was about her. We got to play a game with my first character as an NPC. We haven't been roleplaying Gloomhaven, but the characters do develop a personality. In that game, I got to compare Isaac Childress's vision of her personality to my vision of her. It added so much depth, such a connection to the campaign. I said earlier that it's difficult to review Gloomhaven because it's so big. It's also difficult to review Gloomhaven because I love it so much, for reasons that are kind of personal. I mentioned in a previous review that I had to give up video games because of wrist tendinitis. My favorite video games were sprawling dungeon crawlers, especially the Diablo series. I clocked countless hours playing Diablo 2 II and three. And I never realized how much I missed them until Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven feels a bit like Diablo II in a box. Advancing through a series of variable maps, killing monsters, collecting loot, leveling up, learning new skills, then on to the next map. Gloomhaven scratches that itch like nothing I thought possible. I've played 40 games of Gloomhaven almost every week since I got it, and I'm not even close to getting tired of it. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not playing Gloomhaven, I'm still playing Gloomhaven. There's really not a time that I'm not playing Gloomhaven, but in between games, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Ovenall.
3: My college roommate Renata came to the United States in 1991 as an exchange student from Yugoslavia. When it came time to go home in the summer of 1992, her country was at war. The plane tickets her parents had purchased for her were for an airline that no longer existed. Her host family extended her visit, and she ended up applying to college here. She came to university with the goal of becoming an architect so that she could rebuild all the precious landmarks in her beloved Sarajevo. I will never forget her love of country and extreme confusion as to how the Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian kids that she grew up with could turn from kindred spirits into enemies in a few short months. This war of mine, designed by Mikal Urosh and Jakub Viznushk and artist Pavel Nizolek, and published by Awaken Realms, brings to life the reality of civilians living in war through a complex, cooperative storytelling game for one to six players. You begin the game with three people squatting into house together with a few resources and a whole lot of rubble. They need to eat food and drink water, and you can only keep them on their feet for so many days before they collapse from fatigue. But push them you must. Every action is crucial if they don't watch the door or bravely face sniper fire to meet visitors. They may fail to survive. However, every missed meal, illness, or misery endured adds statuses that shorten the number of actions each worker has each day. This war of mine has the agonizing decision space and creative engine building that I love so much. Need rest? Build a bed. It seems so deceptively easy, but this game is anything but. The genius of this game is the house itself. Initially full of rubble to be removed and rooms to be explored, you start with a few worker placement spots built into the house itself. You can go outside to meet a visitor who might move in or offer something to trade. You can dream up new ideas to add to the most important pile of cards in the game, the fittings pile. This set of cards contains items you can build that add worker placement spots to the house. Things like rainwater collection, a furnace, or a radio. This increasing game space becomes agonizing when your wounded or hungry characters have fewer and fewer actions to use each day. After the day actions, you head into evening where you can go scavenging, leave people to guard the door, or let them sleep as a last resort. This is where the game asks you to push your luck and roll some dice. Thematically, this works as you are in an unpredictable and hostile environment where luck could be a life-or-death situation. This also plays out mechanically, as the type of game mechanics that you interact with at this point are diverse, and until you come across them unexplained. This brings up the most divisive aspect of this game. There is no traditional rulebook, just a journal with one page for setup, and a description of each phase of the game, and a couple details to sort out some of the complexity. Technically, it is enough to get you through a first play of the game, but I visited the BGG forums more than once for help. With over 200 rules threads on the game, it appears that a few other people struggled as well. Some will embrace this struggle as a thematic first-time experience of surviving war, others want to know how to succeed before they even start. Many games have pathetic solo or two-player variants. This game has the opposite problem. I would call this a solo game that multiple people can play together. BGG recommends it for one to three players and rates it best at one. In a multiplayer game, players take turns making all decisions for the household during a phase. Other players can argue over a course of action, but the lead player makes all decisions and rolls all the dice. I can't imagine enjoying the downtime in a 4-6 to player game. This game will make you cry, but it will also remind you how lucky you are. Playing this game, I am often reminded of what a fine line there is between the life I take for granted and one in which I have to search for every drop of water and forage for every bite of food. That might make this more a work of art than game, but it is important. I would find a way to play it with someone you love, so that you can both experience the twists and turns that this game throws at you. I love this game and recommend it to you with all my heart. Until next time, you can find me at Cat Library on BGG, or Kybrarian on Twitter.
4: Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Ascension. Ascension, designed by Justin Gary and published by his company Stoneblade, only came out in 2010, but in board game time, anything over three years old is basically ancient history. Ascension, while obviously no longer the hotness, has a dedicated fanbase and a very active community that goes beyond just hobby gaming. I got into Ascension through the app like a lot of people, and that's to where I play about 99% of the time. I will assume here that you have not played it, so I really just want to focus on the original core set and its expansion, Chronicle of the Godslayer and Return of the Fallen. I think they're probably your best point of departure into the bizarre world of Vigil. When I discussed Star Realms back in Episode 7, I said that I mostly don't like deck building games. Specifically, I don't care for Dominion or any of its clones that present a player with a large pool of cards all at once. That style of game requires a fair amount of card memorization and long term planning, which is not really what I'm looking for in a casual deck builder. Like most deck building games, you start Ascension with some low value cards. Half of them give you the power to buy more cards, and the other half of them give you the power to kill some demons. Sending demons back into the void is very good, because demons, of course, are bad. One of the aspects of Ascension that really clicked with me initially was that unlike Magic or some other trading card games, you're not attacking your opponent. Instead, the draw deck is full of evil monsters and demons from the void that you're trying to defeat. Ascension is not a zero-sum game. There's still plenty of player interaction, you can do things to impede your opponent, but you're not just out to destroy one another. There are four different card factions in Ascension, basically cards that just give you the power to buy more cards. Cards that help you to fight the demons, cards that give you straight points, and cards that let you draw more cards. That is, of course, incredibly simplistic and reductive. Most of the cards are heroes, basically just people of some sort, and when you play these they go back into your discard pile at the end of your turn. There are also constructs, which are more like things or happenings or places, and these stay from round to round unless they get used or you're forced to discard them. These give you extra stuff, special powers, that kind of thing. A huge reason I was originally pulled into the world of Vigil is the incredible scratchboard art in every set from artist Eric Savey. Using a single artist for an entire series gives Ascension a deep thematic layer that a lot of other games just don't have. It's been really cool in the last several years to watch Eric's art evolve. I really appreciate the thematic world of Ascension, and I love that it doesn't rely at all on tired fantasy tropes. This may not sell you on it, but it's the game I've played that feels the most heavy metal. Ascension can be pretty dark and upsetting, so probably best to avoid if you're not okay with slaughtering corrupt gods or performing ancient rites of black magic. Ascension's theme clicks for me the way really good speculative fiction clicks. A rarity when so many games are built around sloppy send-ups of D&D character classes. If you played the original set and you're interested in the expansions, I can highly recommend some of them but will probably discourage you from pursuing others, as some of the later sets become somewhat overwrought mechanically. There's an overwhelming amount of this game in the world, so let's go through these sets in order quickly. Storm of Souls and Immortal Heroes, the second standalone game in its expansion. This adds event cards, trophy monsters, soul gems, one-time use cards from previous sets. I love this set as much as the original, also now very reasonably priced on the used market. Rise of Vigil and Darkness Unleashed, the third standalone game and its expansion. This adds a concept called Energy Shards, cards you collect to activate extra powers of your heroes, also new cards that can transform to new versions of themselves using Energy Shards. A super cool concept that works beautifully in the app, but I can see it being sort of annoying in the physical game. Realms Unraveled, the fourth standalone game and the first without any expansion. This brings in the idea of multi-faction cards and uniting, allowing you to trigger new effects by playing multiple cards of the same faction. I played the hell out of this set when it was released on digital, and I highly recommend it. This is also the first set with updated graphic design, making the cards easier to read and providing some more space for the art. Dawn of Champions, the fifth standalone set, and the first one that really fell a little flat for me. It adds goofy asymmetrical champion cards with special powers that I just didn't like. It does have multi-faction constructs and monsters, though, so that's kind of cool. Dreamscape. The sixth standalone game is a straight-up nope for me. Dreamscape adds a resource called Insight that lets you look at a hidden deck of vision cards or some nonsense. I didn't care for this one at all. Too much information, too much to track. Some great art, though. War of Shadows, the seventh standalone and most recent digital edition from 2016. I absolutely loved this one. It has these day and night events, and certain heroes have more abilities, depending on if it's day or night. It also added some dual-cost cards, forcing you to spend power and rune magic, not just one or the other. Gift of the Elements. I haven't played this one as it's not available digitally yet, but I do know it gives players the ability to mess with opponents decks, so it may not be for me. There are also about a zillion promos and special theme packs for Ascension, but I assure you that you don't need any of them. You can pick up a used copy of the base game, Chronicle of the Godslayer, for around $15, and that's enough space for the first two full sets and both expansions all sleeved. The cheapest way to try Ascension is, of course, the free app. The app has the base set, and for a very casual player it would be more than enough game. You can buy all the expansions in-app, and they are very well-priced. They range from $2 to $4, or about 10% of the retail price of the physical copies of the games. There's also a cool small-box version called the Apprentice Edition that you can pick up for under $10. It's two-player only, but I think Ascension is best at two anyway. So who should buy Ascension? People who like tactical deck builders. People who like unusual worlds of dark fantasy. People who are looking for a slightly deeper experience than Star Realms can offer. And people who like the idea of an engine-building card game without much direct conflict. I give Ascension 7 out of 7 blood sacrifices to Semael the Fallen, debased god of the infinite void. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver.
0: The wave of nostalgia is a tricky thing to ride, but if society has shown anything of late, it's that it will richly reward any company that gets that nostalgic feel just right. Well, for most people at least. So it's probably of little surprise that Restoration Games started with a bang with their premise of resurrecting games from the 60s to 90s and bringing them back for quote-unquote modern gamers. And while, as a kid, I thought my family had a decent game collection, I'm constantly learning that we never owned the cool games. But while I hadn't played the original Stop Thief, that didn't stop the clamor of others over the game from influencing my decision to back the 2017 resurrection of the 1979 classic by Robert Doyle. Stop Thief seemed ideal for my first foray into restored games because as a kid, deduction games like Clue were always my favorite. And even today, my family still regularly plays Scotland Yard, so I was curious how it stacked up especially after a rewrite by Rob Davio and Justin Jacobson, and a pretty slick art update by Roland McDonald. In Stop Thief, you are playing competing private investigators trying to track down a thief that you cannot see. Unlike the one versus many games, the thieves' movements are chosen and tracked by an app. To catch the thief, you listen to the clues played by the app, deduce where the thief is, move to a spot next to them, and then choose to make an arrest on the app. You'll enter the space number you believe them to be on and wait to hear if they were successfully arrested or if you got something wrong and now owe a $1,000 penalty to the bank. Unlike Scotland Yard, the game doesn't end there, though. The player who caught the thief collects the reward from the bank, a new thief is revealed, and it's off to the races all over again. I personally wouldn't keep my store, bank, museum in such a crime-ridden area, but I guess that's just me. The first investigator to cross a certain monetary threshold wins, which is... okay. I'd personally rather have a longer or harder single chase, but I suppose the game needs something to even out the luck. As for modernizing the game, best I can tell is that the movement has changed to these movement cards that each investigator has. The cards are interesting because several of them have a power on them in addition to the number of spaces that can be moved. For instance, one investigator can play a card to move through windows. Another can get extra private tips, etc. Each investigator has a card that will get them private tips, though. Just this one investigator gets more. In the standard game, the private tip is a space number that the thief is currently on. In the intermediate game, it's two possible spaces, and in the advanced game, that private tip shows two areas on the board that the thief could be in. In theory, this should make the advanced game more difficult, but in my one game on advanced, it was pretty obvious which section was the correct one. It is possibly because the advanced game was only a two-player game, but I found it to be just as easy, if not more easy, than regular mode. In the end, I'm a bit mixed on Stop Thief. I think I expected too much due to the modern gamer statement in the company title. The card play and the special actions certainly make for a more thoughtful game than your standard roll and move, but in the end, this is still just a kid's game. My six-year-old had no trouble with the mechanisms here and won his second game. Pacing also works well for younger kids with that regular ping of rewards as each thief is caught, and the lights and sounds of the excellent app are also very high on the young boy appeal chart. But the lucky breaks can get them a little discouraged when they're on the other end of a luck streak, as the thief yet again runs straight into the waiting arms of a sibling or parent. Also, two of the special abilities aren't the most sibling-friendly, as one lets you take money from another player, and the other lets you move another player's investigator four spaces generally away from where you think the current thief is. Two things that at least my young kids took fairly personally when used on them. I feel this game will be much more up our alley when the new player modes get unlocked in the app. One vs. All mode really intrigues me. As smart as the phone app can be, the app doesn't recognize where the players are and therefore can't always make the right choices and where to head next. Cooperative mode could also get some gameplay around here as co-ops make for fun family game nights. If either of those work well, maybe I'll try the solo mode once it's released as well. But it would have to be a step up in difficulty from advanced. Would I still recommend Stop Thief? Yes, absolutely. For families looking for some lighter deduction fun with kids, it's a pretty solid game. For modern gamers, that I'm a little more mixed on. If you have nostalgia for the original game, of course you should get it. There's even a mode that simulates the original entry pad. Why you'd use that rather than the slick new interface is beyond me, but that's your choice. I'm hanging on to my copy because I want to see what the other modes do once they're unlocked. I can only hope that at least one of them advances the current gameplay to something with a more exciting ramp-up finish like Scotland Yard or Spectre Ops. So those are my thoughts on Stop Thief. If you'd like to discuss the game further, or further discuss why heist movies are the best movies, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike MikeRisley.
3: Thanks for listening to The 5 By. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5bygames. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com.
1: The 5 By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.